right wrestling with theology fans after a long absence it is time once again for wrestling with theology i am pastor doug minton here with episode 110 which would have been two weeks ago from the confessional corner but with the moving to our new milford illinois studios that got to be put on the back burner but today is a the beginning of a week where i am going with a dry run for the schedule I'm hoping to do this summer. We're having all three segments of Wrestling with Theology every week and not just once a month. So as I said today, we are in the confessional corner. We are looking at the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 on Justification, still very early on in the introduction to this article as the confutation made it go from about six lines of a paragraph to 80-something pages. So we do have a lot more to go through here. I did have a whole year planned on just this article. So we're picking up in paragraph 17. Yet the adversaries do not pass by Christ completely. They require a knowledge of the history about Christ. They credit him by writing that from his merit, a way of life is given to us, or, as they say, first grace. They understand this as a habit, inclining us to love God more readily. Yet what they credit to this habit is of little importance, for they imagine that the human will's acts are the same before and after this habit. They imagine that the will can love God, but nevertheless, this habit stimulates it to love more cheerfully. They tell us first, merit this habit by your earlier merits. Then they tell us as we should merit an increase of this habit and life eternal by the works of the law. In this way they bury Christ so that people may not benefit from him as mediator and believe that they freely receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation for his sake. They let people dream that by their own fulfillment of the law, they merit forgiveness of sins. That by their own fulfillment of the law, they are counted righteous before God. However, the law is never satisfied, since reason does nothing except certain civil works. In the meantime, a person neither fears God nor truly believes that God cares. Although they speak about this habit, God's love cannot exist in a person without the righteousness of faith, nor can his love be understood. The Roman theologians who are writing the Confutation simply require a knowledge of the history about Christ. Unfortunately, many Christians buy into this myth. They want to believe that the Christian faith is only about being able to regurgitate the gospel accounts of Christmas, Easter, and maybe a couple of miracles and parables. But this knowledge is not enough. It's known as the Christian faith, not the Christian facts. Simply knowing some bullet point facts about Jesus doesn't mean that you know Jesus. Prima gratia, the first grace, is a semi-Pelagian imagination. Melanchthon calls it a feeble, paltry, small, poor operation, and a little more wooden of a translation. The idea that God imputes a small amount of grace in us is ridiculous. It allows people to believe that they can choose whether or not to follow Jesus and choose whether to sin or not. Anyone who has watched the news or raised children know that this idea is completely bogus. But our sinful human nature wants to believe it's true. 
Prima gratia is a great building block for sinful Adam's desire to justify himself. But it's a horrible attempt at justification. To further perpetuate this prima gratia first grace hoax, the papists tell us to merit this habit by prior merits, by earlier merits, that we have to earn this gift from God. Melanchthon continues on in paragraph 19. They make up a distinction between due merit and true complete merit. This is only a tactic so that they do not appear to agree openly with the Pelagians. If God must give grace for the due merit, it is no longer due merit, but a true duty and complete merit. They do not know what they are saying. After this habit of love is in a person, they imagine that such a person can gain merit in a wholly deserving way. Yet they tell us to doubt whether there is a habit present. Therefore, how do they know whether they gain merit in a merely agreeable way or a wholly deserving way? This whole matter was made up by idle men. They did not know how forgiveness of sins happens and how, by God's judgment and the terrors of the conscience, trust in works is driven out of us. Secure hypocrites always judge that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way, whether the habit is present or is not present, because people naturally trust in their own righteousness. But terrified consciences waver and hesitate. Then they seek and heap up other works in order to find peace. Such consciences never think that they gain merit in a wholly deserving way, and they rush into despair unless they hear, in addition to the teaching of the law, the gospel about free forgiveness of sins and righteousness of faith. So the adversaries teach nothing but righteousness of reason, or certainly about the law. They see the law just like the Jewish people see Moses' veiled face. In self-secure hypocrites who think that they fulfill the law, they stir up assumptions and empty confidence in works and cause them to have contempt for the grace of Christ. On the other hand, they also drive timid consciences to despair. The timid labor with doubt. They can never experience what faith is and how effective it is, so at last they completely despair. We think about the righteousness of reason like this. God requires it. Because of God's commandment, the honorable works commanded by the Ten Commandments must be done, according to Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian. Likewise, 1 Timothy 1.9 says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. For God wants wild sinners to be restrained by civil discipline. To maintain discipline, he has given laws, letters, doctrine, rulers, and penalties. To a certain extent, reason can, by its own strength, perform this civil righteousness. Yet it is often overcome by natural weakness and by the devil pushing it to do obvious crimes. We cheerfully credit this righteousness of reason with the praises that are due it. This corrupt nature has no greater good. Aristotle rightly says, Neither the evening star nor the morning star is more beautiful than righteousness. And God also honors it with bodily rewards. However, it ought not to be praised by dishonoring Christ. So it is false that we merit forgiveness of sins by our work. It is also false that people are right, counted righteous before God because of the righteousness of reason. It is false that reason, by its own strength, is able to love God above all things and to fulfill God's law. In other words, reason cannot truly fear God, be truly confident that God hears prayer, be willing to obey God in death and other divine matters, not covet what belongs to others, and so on. Yet reason can do civil works. 
The following is also false and dishonoring to Christ. People do not sin who without grace do God's commandments. The distinction between agreeable merit and deserved merit is greatly confusing, especially considering that the Roman theologians condemned the Pelagians for doing the exact same thing. The translations of due merit and completed merit give a better picture of the distinction. Are you due Christ merit? Or is it a completed gift to you? Are your sins forgiven because God owes you forgiveness? If God owes you something, you must be greater than God. After all, as Dave Ramsey likes to quote in his seminars, the borrower is slave to the lender, Proverbs 22.7. Whenever you owe something, it's because you've borrowed it. If God owes you forgiveness, it's because he borrowed it from you in the first place. How backwards is that? The adversaries teach nothing but the righteousness of reason. They excite presumption and empty confidence in works and contempt of the grace of Christ. Lutherans understand that God requires the works involved in the righteousness of reason. But the righteousness of reason does not merit or does not remit our sins. Just as God does not owe us forgiveness, we cannot be forgiven by our good works. We must, it must be God's gift to you if you're going to be forgiven. The entire section from 19 to 28 is summarized again in paragraph 27. It is false that reason by its own strength is able to love God above all things and to fulfill God's law. In other words, reason cannot truly fear God, be confident that God hears prayers, be willing to obey God in death and other divine matters, not covet what belongs to others, and so on. Yet reason can do civil works. Okay, let's take this for a second and give it a spin with the third article of the Apostles' Creed. As Luther explains the third article of the Creed, when we talk about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. He says, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, Believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to Him. That is completely counter what the Roman theologians were talking about in the confutation on Article 4 on justification. Because they said, you can, by your own reason or strength, because you have this first grace. But no, the Reformers say that is absolutely absurd. And anybody who reads the Bible can tell you that you cannot merit your own forgiveness. You cannot work out your own salvation. Even though Paul does tell the Philippians to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. He's saying that to the secure, to those who brazenly think 
like the Roman theologians, that they can get to a point where they will not sin anymore. That they don't need Jesus anymore. And that is a very horrible spot to be in. We pick up in paragraph 29, where we go from the introduction itself to a talking of the fathers as they talk about justification and grace and all of this, especially as we get to Augustine talking in his book on nature and grace. So we pick up in paragraph 29. We have testimonies in favor of our belief, not only from the scriptures, but also from the fathers. For in opposition to the Pelagians, Augustine argues at great length that grace is not given because of our merits. And on nature and grace, he says, if natural ability through the free will is enough for learning how one ought to live and for living aright, then Christ has died in vain. Then the offense of the cross is made void. Why may I not also cry out about this? Yes, I will cry out, and with Christian grief I will rebuke them. You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. John 8.36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, by reason, we cannot be freed from sins and merit forgiveness of sins. In John 3.5, it is written, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But if it is necessary to be born again of the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of reason does not justify us before God and does not fulfill the law. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They totally lack the wisdom and righteousness of God, which acknowledges and glorifies God. Likewise, Romans 8, 7-8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These testimonies are so clear that to use Augustine's words in this case, they do not need a keen understanding, but only an attentive hearer. If the carnal mind is hostile against God, the flesh certainly does not love God. If it cannot be subject to God's law, it cannot love God. If the carnal mind is hostile to God, the flesh sins even when we do outward civil works. If it cannot be subject to God's law, it certainly sins even when it has deeds that are excellent and praiseworthy, according to human judgment. The adversaries consider only the teachings of the second table, which contain civil righteousness that reason understands. Content with this, they think that they fulfill God's law. In the meantime, they do not see the first table, which commands that we love God, that we declare God is certainly angry with sin, that we truly fear God, that we declare God certainly hears prayer. But the human heart, without the Holy Spirit, either feels secure and despises God's judgment, or in punishment flees from God and hates Him when He judges. Therefore, it does not obey the first table. So contempt for God, doubt about God's word, and doubt about the threats and promises dwell in human nature. People truly sin even when, without the Holy Spirit, they do virtuous works. This is because they act with a wicked heart, according to Romans 14.23, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
For such people do their works with contempt for God, just as Epicurus does not believe that God cares for him or that he is regarded or heard by God. This contempt ruins works that seem virtuous because God judges the heart. The Roman theologians and human nature in general loves the second table of the law, loves this idea of how we interact with our neighbor and how we can actually do virtuous works in the eyes of people. But they totally skip the first table, the ones that talk about our love for God. As Luther explains the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He says we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You cannot do this by yourself. This only comes from the Holy Spirit, as we saw from the third article of the Creed. Only by the Holy Spirit being given through the Word and through the sacraments, especially of baptism, do we have that even shot at doing a truly good work in the eyes of God. As they quoted from Romans 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'm going to stop here as we get into a, another long section beginning in paragraph 36. But for this episode, think about this for a moment. Wrestle with this. If the carnal, fleshly mind is hostile to God, how can it say it loves God? You cannot love something to which you are hostile toward. That is not love. You must have faith in order to love God. You must have faith that He has justified you through the washing away of your sins in baptism in the blood of His Son for you to even know what loving God means or even how to love God or that you even want to love God. And as they'll say in paragraph 36, it is very foolish for the adversaries to write these things, to even teach these things, because it is not in accordance with the Bible, the church fathers, and for the, mo the bulk of church history, with the consensus of the church, people have fought wars over things like this because people were spreading false doctrine. But again, we have that today because human nature loves to say, oh, I can do this. I can, I can love God. See, I can do all these good things for other people. And that's great. I commend you for all the good works that you do for other people. But the question is, who are you doing the works for? Are you like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that says, Lord, I thank God that I am not like other men, you know, extortioners, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But I do all these great things, even above and beyond 
what the law requires. Why is he doing it? Because he likes to pump up his own ego, not because he loves God. No, it is the tax collector who stands afar off and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, who cannot even lift up his eyes to heaven to pray and says, Lord, I can't do this. I keep messing up. I keep sinning. And that's what we have to deal with in this life. That's what we have to wrestle with, is we want to do good, as Paul says in Romans 7. But evil is right there with us. We cannot escape it. Why? Because our human nature is rotten and corrupted to the core. There is nothing good that is in me, that is in my flesh. Why? Because I am a sinner. I want to do good, but that's not because of me. That's because of the Holy Spirit prompting me to want to do good things, to Look to the light that he has given us in the gospel. The gospel that says that all sins have been forgiven through the shed blood of Christ. All right, it's all for this episode. As we come out of the confessional corner, we'll continue on in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4. Next time we're in the corner, which will be the beginning of March, I encourage you guys to... Truly wrestle with this idea, especially as we come into Wednesday being Ash Wednesday in the beginning of Lent. As we do truly see our need for our Savior, our need for forgiveness. Not because God owes it to us, but because it is His free gift that He lovingly gives to us. We'll see you next time. This is Pastor Doug Minton once again, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology today and always. Amen.